is that you do as well. So we're going to get in this together. Now, I've, ca- I've titled our message this morning, Well, Wealth. That's the title. Because it's sort of sheepish and it's sort of, eh, I don't know. Mike Hall started us off last week on August 7th. He said there's a lot of things in life that we're willing to discuss with other people and even other believers, but often our wealth is not on that list. We, we tend to get sheepish and we, we suddenly like to use church-friendly euphemisms like stewarding our resources, or, or we talk about you know, the, the many financial blessings that the Lord has rained down upon us. You're talking about money. Okay, we know you're talking about money and that you're not talking about money. It's just one of those things that we don't like to talk about. A guy will sit in a Bible study and he will share his browsing internet history. But if you ask to see his bank statement, he'll choke you out. It's an amazing thing how we operate that way. The transparent reality is that we are going to talk about wealth in general and money in particular. It matters. And interestingly, it matters to God, a lot, but not because God is greedy or needy. How could he be? He has everything, he lacks nothing. If God lacked anything, it would literally ungod God, and that is the one thing God cannot do. So it's not because he's needy or greedy, it's because he loves us, and he knows what's best for us. He knows that the biggest competition for our hearts is money. I want you to hear that again. Our sovereign, good, gracious, merciful God knows that the biggest competition for our hearts is money. And so that leads me to our big idea for this morning, and it goes very simply like this. Trust God, or let me put the emphasis on the correct syllable. Trust God, or perhaps let me say it like this. Trust God. Now, with all that said, please turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. And as you've got your Bible, hopefully, and you're about to turn to Deuteronomy 8, let me give you a little bit of an on-ramp here. I know that if you've probably been in church before, hearing the expression, trust God, is probably not novel, probably not the first time you've ever heard that or thought that. But I don't just mean that you agree that God is good and that you can trust him. I mean that you actually trust him functionally and practically moment by moment. This is where the real rubber of our souls meets the real road of our granular lives. Now, I've spent a lot of time as a human, and I've spent a lot of time as a pastor in counseling context, and even in casual conversations. The honest, transparent meditation that I hear probably most often from well-meaning, church-attending, Bible-reading, Jesus-loving, casserole-baking Christians is... Oh, I know that God can. I just don't know that he will. You ever thought that? You ever said that? Have you ever prayed that? Oh, I know that God can. I just don't know that he will. Or more precisely, I know that God can provide my need or supply my heart's desire. I just don't know that he will. And that analysis right there, that fledgling lack of trust leads us to putting our practical and our functional trust in what we do understand and what we can control, or at least what we think we can control, to accomplish and acquire what we want and what we believe we need. And so functionally and practically, in our culture and context, we trust our wealth. Did you get that? 
We trust our wealth. That's the mistake and that's the error. I also happen to think it's a lot of the reason why we don't want to talk about our wealth. It goes down to our deep, depraved fears. We don't want to talk about it because we don't want to jinx it. Even though it's the 21st century and you're intelligent and we don't believe in jinxes, you still aren't going to be too cocky about it. You're not going to talk about your wealth because you don't want to mess this up. you got a pretty good deal going. So we don't want to talk about our wealth. We want to pr promote and project this spirit of, of humility. And I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to mess this up. That is a terrible mindset about our wealth. Our God is so much bigger and wiser than that. And if we miss that, we miss him. If God does not supply what we think is our biggest need or our greatest heart's desire, then that means that he really does know better because God really is good all the time. And he's gooder than you to you all the time. It means he's protecting us from something that is less than or preparing for us something that is more than for us. Please hear that. We say this all the time around here. I want to say it again. God always says yes unless he has a better idea. Now, some of you may hear that and go, yeah, but I prayed about my family member's illness or I prayed about this financial situation or I prayed about this relationship and God, God didn't answer the way I wanted. I know, I know. And that's hard. But trust God. He really is sovereign. He really is good. And he really does know better. So trust God. Now then, if you didn't happen to attend one of our campaign information meetings in the month of July, or if we didn't make it to one of your life groups to talk about this, or if you were not here last week when Mike opened up our campaign conversation, let me catch you up. We are in an investment campaign, and we believe that we as a church across all five of our campuses are trying to raise approximately $6 million for various expansion projects across all of our campuses, as well as some of our uh, emphasized missions priorities. We believe that God is calling us to more than we can imagine or expect. 40 years ago, when Bethel began, a couple dozen 20-somethings sat in a bank building here in downtown Tyler on the square, and they worshiped together, and they prayed together, and they studied God's word together, and they asked God to do exceedingly more abundant than they can ever imagine, and they never imagined this. That as Mike mentioned last year, thousands of baptisms, 25,000 people walk through the doors of this building every single month. They never could have imagined. And all of us have the opportunity to participate in what God's going to do in this place with this ministry for the next however many years. If you haven't already, I want you to pick up one of these booklets. Uh, you were supposed to have gotten one last week. If you didn't, please pick one up on the way out. If you did pick one up and it's already lost and tumbling down Broadway somewhere near Bergfeld Park by now, that's okay. Get another one. We made extras. I want you to have this because it answers probably about 95% of the questions that you have. What, where, how come, when, how much, what in the world, why didn't anybody ask me? All those kinds of things, it's in the booklet. Or you can also email mike at bethelbible.com. Always a good idea. Start with Mike. Now then on August 21st and 28th, we're also going to be handing out some commitment cards where we will invite you and your household, your family to respond and engage. Turn those in on the 21st and the 28th. Our big ask at this point is that you and I and we together would trust God and that we would pray that God would do exceedingly abundant all that we imagine or expect. Oh, that God would continue to do more.
Yes, for the people who are outside our walls across all five campuses, but that God would do more, that the gospel would go forth more penetratingly, more powerfully, more pervasively, but equally important, I also believe that God is doing something exceedingly abundant work in the people who are already here. And for that, I'm humbled and I'm grateful to our God who is for us, who loves us, and so much that he wants to increase his presence in our functional and practical everyday lives. And now at long last, Deuteronomy 8. Please go to Deuteronomy 8. We're going to start in chapter 8, verse 1. This is Moses writing to the people of Israel. He's got them hunkered down in the dirt. And he's writing a very specific message, or he's speaking a very specific message to them for a specific purpose at a point in time, in a place. They have been taking laps in the wilderness for 40 years, almost 40 years, and they were not lost. They knew exactly where they were, and so did all of the peoples all around them. And Moses is sitting them down to remind them, hey, there was a whole generation that died off. We're out in the wilderness for one reason and one reason only. Those people did not trust God. They saw what God did to the Egyptians. They saw God bring them across the Red Sea. They saw what happened to Pharaoh's army. And yet it came time to come into the land and they looked and they said, we can't do it. We don't have the resources. We don't have the means. We don't have the manpower. We don't have enough. And they were right. And they were wrong. Because what they had was the God who has all of the resources in the cosmos, who wanted them to go in and succeed, who had already promised their success and had even promised to go with them. And they didn't trust God. And God said, oh, I love you too much. I will purify you in the wilderness and I will woo you back to myself in the wilderness. And so Moses says in chapter eight, verse one, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful it's good, it's not, it's, not, it's not enough. The word Moses uses here is shamar. 65 times Moses will say the word shamar in Deuteronomy alone. 65 times. It has the idea of be watchful, be mindful, warning. Moses will say it over and over again. Shamar. I want you to say shamar with me. One, two, three. Shamar. Again. Shamar. I need more Robbie. Shamar. Somebody say Shamar. Shamar. <laughs> East Texas Hebrew is the worst of all Hebrew. Shamar, Moses will say it 65 times. Take care, he says. Be careful that you do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. Oh, you see, God's doing a thing that is above and beyond and before your own lifespan. That's hard for us to understand and really appreciate because we are egocentric and we're ethnocentric. We have a tendency to assume that all of life is about me and my immediate sphere of influence or group. But no, God's been doing a thing for generations. I've already made a promise. You are a part of it, but it's not all about you. Sometimes we don't like to hear that, but that's true. I swore to give to your fathers. Verse two, and you shall remember this is the antidote. This is the thing that I struggle with most. I tend to go on autopilot. And so I'm telling you, don't go on autopilot while I'm mindlessly going through my day. But you shall remember 
the whole way that the Lord your God has led you. These 40 years in the wilderness, this very long stretch of time, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. God led them through a season of struggle so that they would depend on him, so that they would depend on him and not on anything else, not on assets, not on resources, not on wealth, not on money, that they would merely trust God because they had no alternative. All throughout your Bible, the wilderness is where God woos his people. We don't like wildernesses. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Oh, that's interesting. That might sound familiar to you. Moses tells them that man does not live by bread alone, but by the word of the Lord. And he's not just talking about scripture at this point, because there is no scripture at this point. Moses is the first inscripturator, we might say. He's talking about the creator of the cosmos voice, the, the, the one who sustains by his sovereignty. And when he says, I am that I am and I love you, that is how you survive. Now, not coincidentally, about 1,500 years later, Jesus in a wilderness being led by the Lord will use this exact same passage in Matthew chapter 7 to respond to the temptations of the enemy. Man does not live by bread alone. See, Moses is functioning as prophet and priest and king, but he's also leading the children of Israel. In both cases, it's pointing us to Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate prophet and priest and king, but he's also the son of God. He is Israel, who was led around in a wilderness. And he recites rightly that man does not live by bread alone. He is dependent upon God. He trusts God. He says in verse 4, your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart, this is as profound and as practical as it gets, moment by moment, thought by thought, word by word, deed by deed, attitude by attitude. This is what we are to know. This is a foundation of our thinking and our feeling. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Understand, believe, and behave as though everything that happens in your life is a part of the Lord's instruction and discipline and perfection of you. And I'm talking to myself because I don't think and feel and behave that way. But this is Moses' exhortation, and he's right. Verse six, so you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. This word fearing is this awestruck wonder this diligent, deliberate, intentional, rightly recognizing our God. Chris mentioned it in our worship time this morning, that we would recognize him rightly and regularly. Verse seven, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in valleys and hills. <gasps> this is a warning. Shamar, you have just been walking in the wilderness and you had to be dependent and he didn't much like that. Your bodies were under threat. We're going to find out from all sorts of fiery serpents and scorpions. Ugh. But now it's about to get much, much worse. You're about to enter into a context of utter prosperity. Warning, warning, warning. Now, they didn't hear it that way. We don't either. We think, oh, finally, I'm going to enter into a context of prosperity. God is finally blessing me like I deserve, and now he can leave me alone. That's wrong thinking about God. They were in peril 
for their bodies in the wilderness. Now they're going to be in peril for their souls as they enter into a context of prosperity and wealth. Verse 8, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey. That's date honey. The trees are just going to be rending up all of their bounty. A land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. Agricultural and economic boom. It's lottery. Israel, you're about to hit the Powerball. How will you respond? Hmm. and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care. Shamar, again. Warning, warning. Mayday, we're going in. It's about to get really dangerous. It's about to be a very grave context. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Warning, you are on the very verge of forgetting. Why does Moses have to say that? Because we are humans, and in our depravity, we tend to wander. We are prone to leave the God we love. Verse 12, lest when you have eaten and are full, you have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up, and you forget that the Lord your God, oh, Full bellies and soft pillows make us forget our good God, I have found. That's just me personally, probably not you. But material comforts often make me forget the God who actually provided all of the means to provide those things. And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You're going to get so comfortable you're going to be so convenienced, you're actually going to forget Egypt. What? Nobody could forget Egypt. Um, you remember the entire nation's army of Egypt under Pharaoh chasing them, and God opens the Red Sea, and they dash across on dry land, and then the ocean or the sea closes back in and kills everybody. Nobody's going to forget that until they do, functionally, practically, because they then, and we now, value independence vastly more than dependence. There are two omega moments in your Bible. The Old Testament has, has the Exodus, where Israel is led through death and passes through into life. The crossing of the Red Sea, that is the omega moment that the Old Testament refers to more than any other event. Always it is God saying, I brought you, Israel, through the Red Sea, through death, and you emerged into life to walk into a newness of prosperity. In the New Testament, the omega moment, the great grand point is the resurrection of Jesus, where true Israel is led through death and into life and to emerge to walk in a newness of life. And there it is. Just like the Israelites were practically and functionally forgetting Egypt, we forget the resurrection and we get comfortable with full bellies and soft pillows and we forget that we're still supposed to be in that tomb and that's all we actually deserve, period. So we begin to think, hey, look at these resources, look at these material blessings and assets. I've done a pretty good work. I've worked pretty hard. I've applied myself and I've built myself and, I've, and we forget that we belong in the sealed tomb. Moses knew it then. Our Bible knows it now. Verse 15, who led you through the great 
and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock. God, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. This is for your good. This is a part of your purification. This is a part of your sanctification leading you through a season of struggle. Verse 17, beware, shamar, again. Take warning, pay attention. Shamar, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Oh man, that's our tendency. That's my tendency. I've worked hard. I've, I've wrangled all of my skills, my talents, my abilities, my gifts, and I've applied myself and I've, beware, Moses is telling us, hey, you were not born in Philistia in 1000 BC with no legs. What chance would you have had then? Ooh, point taken. Point very well taken. Verse 18, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Oh, but we forget that. Remember, because we forget. Remember, because we forget. It is he who gives us the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. If he's given you anything, it's for the blessing of others. It is for the expansion and the increase of his program of covenant. Blessings are always given to bless others. Always, always, every time, and always. Verse 19, and if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, oh, there it is. So forgetfulness leads to pride. Pride leads to idolatry where something else is enthroned in our hearts. Idolatry leads to death. That's the downward spiral every time, always. Eight billion people alive on the planet today. Eight billion people have been alive previously, there thereabouts. And all of them, if that's the pattern, there is pride or forgetfulness, pride, idolatry, and then death. Death meaning not a cessation of existence, but separation between God and man. If you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly shamar, I warn you today that you shall surely perish. It might not go so well for you. No, no, no. You will be cut off. You will be separate like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. Now, they might not have been in the Red Sea because that entire generation had died off, but they sure remember picking bits of Canaanites out of their boots. And why were those Canaanite nations destroyed? Because of their idolatry, because of their refusal to bow before the God of Israel. And so they were judged and God says, I will do the same thing. You will become just like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. So shall you perish. Why? Because you would not obey the voice. Again, not just scripture, the creator of the cosmos voice. He who sustains, Dabar Yahweh, the word of the Lord. You would not obey the voice of the Lord, your God. So what do we take away from this some 3,500 years after Moses is sitting in the dirt outside the promised land? How do we apply that to our lives here today in the 21st century in East Texas? Well, I want to give you three quick implications, but I want to amplify these things with the words of the one who is, in fact, himself, Dabar Yahweh, the word of the Lord. I want to give you three quick implications from the teachings of Jesus 
himself. The first one goes like this. Wealth can rob you blind. You're going to see a pattern here, I hope, if I've done my work. Wealth can rob you blind. Wealth and money, though it might seem like the giver of goodness and blessing, can actually steal something precious from you. Most of us are probably familiar with what we call the parable of the soils. Jesus talks about it in the Gospel of Matthew and in Mark and in Luke. I want to key in on Matthew's record of it. He's explaining heart conditions using soil as a metaphor. You're familiar with the parable. A farmer goes out and he sows seed. He broadcasts it widely. And that seed falls on four different kinds of soil. This is not a parable about who is saved and who is not. This is a parable about the condition of a hearer's heart. In fact, it's such an important parable that the disciples go, and I quote, we don't get it. We don't understand. What is, what is this? What are you talking about? And interestingly and unusually, Jesus actually explains the parable because it's introductory and it's critical that they get it. He says, oh, well, let me explain. The word that goes out, that's the word, that's the seed that goes out, that's the word. And it lands on this soil and it lands on this soil. But listen to what he says as he's explaining. Jesus explains one of the types, one of the categories of soil. Matthew 13, 22. Jesus says, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. That's interesting insight from Jesus. Jesus links the cares of the world with the deceitfulness of riches. To the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. It's made it into a person's heart, but there is a competing interest and it is strong. This competing interest has a tendency to choke the word out. It cuts it off from life and so it does not bear fruit. The thing we need most is actually choked out and rendered powerless and fruitless because of a competing interest and that would be wealth. When we trust in wealth, Rather than trust God, we are caught in a delusion. If you buy into the lie that the world system and wealth promises, then you will miss God's best for you. Wealth can rob you blind. Ironically, money makes promises it can't keep. Or we might say it this way, money writes checks that it can never cash. Oh, isn't that interesting? Money writes checks that it can never cash. Instead of trusting wealth, shamar! Jesus is teaching us to trust God. So money can rob you blind. Second point, or wealth can rob you blind. Second point, wealth can warp your mind. Wealth can rob you blind. Wealth can warp your mind. Now, if you'd like, flip over to the gospel of Luke. You're in Matthew. Now go to Luke chapter 12. Jesus is also teaching yet again on one of his favorite topics. Surprise, wealth. In fact, he talks about wealth and money more than he talks about heaven and hell combined. That's really instructive. He's addressing an issue in the human being, in the human condition. It's almost like he knows the dangers of our hearts. In Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus says to them, take care and be on your guard. Ah, it's a mosaic shamar. Moses is teaching in the way, or Jesus is teaching in the way of Moses. He says, take care and be on your guard. Shamar, he would have said, but in Aramaic. Against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
Now, why does Jesus have to tell them that? Because there is a fundamental foundational assumption that it does, that our life consists of the abundance of our possessions. The more we have, the more we are. The less we have, the less we are. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. That reveals you have a twisted mind. Your mind is warped. Your thinker's busted. But that's how we all come into this world. He starts off and he tells them that, and then he tells them that their life does not consist of that. That's what our culture, that's what our world system bombard us with every second, that the path to fulfillment and therefore joy comes with this next thing or experience, and of course, that requires wealth to obtain it. Just a little bit more, just a little bit more. He says that kind of thinking is actually warped. It's backwards. And then he tells them this story, beginning in 16. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Notice the land produced, not the rich man. The land produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have... By the way, when you find yourself having a conversation, calling yourself soul, boop, pump the brake, potsy. Things are about to get bad, okay? (laughs) Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Please notice, God's involved in that conversation. God is present. God knows the musings of our minds. But God said to him, fool, that's a tip-off that God's not for you in that context. That's an indicator. You go, hmm, did you, did you say fool? Or, hmm, I'm full. No, I said fool. Okay, fool. This night, your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. It happens so subtly and it happens by default. Our minds are inclined to being warped this way. So you may be thinking, and I certainly want for all of us to be introspective about this, you may be wondering, is my mind warped on this? Am I confused about wealth? Well, there's two very quick checks we can pull from this text. Two very quick questions. Are you primarily gathering your wealth and resources for yourself? You might try to massage that away. Well, no, it's for my, it's for my family. They don't, they, they're fine. They're fine. Are you gathering wealth for yourself? Or are you giving generously to what God cares about? That's what Jesus says in the last verse. Rich toward God. Are you giving generously to what God cares about? For real, that's it. That's how you check and discern if your mind is right about wealth. Instead of trusting wealth, shamar. Jesus is teaching us to trust God. So wealth can rob you blind. Wealth can warp your mind. And then thirdly, wealth can put your soul in a bind. That's right. Couldn't help myself. Wealth can rob you blind. Wealth can warp your mind. Wealth can put your soul in a bind. Stay in Luke and go a few chapters to the right. Go to Luke chapter 18. It's also a familiar passage and often, unfortunately, gets sort of misused and I would claim misapplied. It's the story of the rich young ruler. Now, you might know the story. A rich young ruler approaches Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Now, this is interesting. The text tells us that he was extremely rich. So he has every necessary resource, every available means. And yet there's an itch. Something is missing and he knows it. Something has gone wrong and he's not fulfilled. He's incomplete. And so he comes to Jesus in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 18. Ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, 
Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus understands this guy has sniffed out that Jesus is divine. This is a test, giving it back to him. You know, verse 20, the commandments, do not commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. Now, Jesus, oh, this, Jesus, can you, this guy, I love this guy. He's so clever, he's, well, because he's God, but he's just amazing. What Jesus has just done is he gave him the second tablet, what we call the horizontal commands that are all about how we deal with one another. He provides and projects, here's the, the commandments about how you interact with one another. And the rich young ruler's like, boom, 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 I got this. I've done this. I got it all. Jesus doesn't quote the first tablet. Oh, he'll do that in what's coming next. The ruler says, verse 21, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus then presents him with the first tablet. There is a competing interest. There is a usurper on the throne of your heart. Oh, you're being moral and good and decent horizontally, great. But there is an idol that you have still sitting on the throne of your heart. Jesus is not calling us all to some communistic collectivization of wealth where we all take vows of poverty and live like Francis of Assisi. Whew, can I dispel that? Not at all what Jesus is doing. Jesus is addressing the first of the commandments. You shall have no other God before me. And the rich young ruler did. And this is Jesus in rabbinic style, very cleverly calling that out and putting it very clearly in the rich young ruler's lap. He shocks him and us by effectively saying, get rid of that pretender, that imposter, that usurper that you've set up in your soul as the basis for your trust. Get it out of you at any cost whatsoever. Jesus knows what's best for us. And so he teaches us to usurp wealth from the throne of our life. It's not in control. It must not rule us and invite Christ to the only one who is qualified to reside and to reign there. Instead of trusting wealth, shamar, Jesus says, teaching us to trust God. That's what Moses was calling the people of Israel to do. It's what Jesus was calling the disciples and his hearers 2,000 years ago to trust God. So let me just wrap all of this up and land it like this. We were on a journey from Moses straight through to Jesus, and now we'll land this with the Apostle Paul. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul writes this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set up their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Do you see what Paul's saying? Same thing Moses said. Same thing Jesus said. Don't trust in your wealth. It is not your strength. Here today, gone tomorrow. You can have everything and lose all that matters, Paul might say, because Moses said and because Jesus said. Do not set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good. That does not mean moral and decent. Righteousness in the New Testament and in the Old Testament and everything in between always has to do with the community willingly disadvantaging the self for the sake of the group. That's a good work. We talk about this hopefully as often as we can. Good works is not moral deeds solely. It is willingly disadvantaging self for the betterment, the building, the bolstering, and the blessing of the group. 
That's what we are to be about. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. See, wealth can rob you blind. Wealth can warp your mind. Wealth can put your soul in a bind. But our God who loves us wants us to have life. So let me summarize it this way. There is no sanctification without generosity. And that's a propositional statement that I just made in your tendencies to hear that and disagree. Bring it. There is no sanctification without generosity. And you and I as believers do not have a story apart from the church. And if you think that you do, you do not understand the bride of Christ and how much Jesus loves his bride. It's a really big deal. And so what, what am I trying to do? Trying to raise $6 million? No, don't care. Don't care. But I will tell you that I have been stretched and grown personally to think, what do I really trust? And how often am I on autopilot not even remembering the God that loves me, the God who is gifted and instilled with so many goodnesses and blessings? If we don't raise a cent, but everybody's changed, I'm totally in on that deal. I was asked a question two weeks ago, and I'll present it to all of us. If you could have that land of promise, not actually in Canaan, but here, where you could have every single material blessing you can imagine, it's a heaven on earth. You hit the Powerball of Powerballs. It's, it's, it's not just 1.3 billion, it's like 10 billion. It, it's everything. You can have everything and there's no more, there's no more sadness, there, there's no more death, there's no more disease, there's no more pain, there's no more strife, there's no more envy, there's no more hurt or hate, anything. But Jesus wasn't there. Would that be good enough? And I got to tell you, in my flesh, I have to look in the mirror and make eye contact, which is a tough thing to do for a long period of time. And I say, yeah, some days, yeah, yeah, to my shame. But the Bible comes along and says, all of that stuff is a blade of grass. But my God, who loves me, who is for me, who is sovereign, wants me to have life and life abundant now. So again, to be completely clear, this is not about the money or the wealth, really. It's about all of us looking deeply into what we really trust and respond as God would lead us. I'm asking you to join me in talking about this with your household over the next week and to really pray out loud and together. Hold hands and pray with your spouse. For some of you, you're like, ah, no, that would be intimate. I know! Do that. Pray about this. Make a plan about what you believe God would have you do. For some of you, it is simply time to invest your time and your talent. It is time for you to, to serve. It is time for you to engage and to, and to lead in some capacity, to be involved, to, to give yourself in some capacity. For some of you, it's time to make the largest financial contribution you've never even considered. I don't get to know about it. You do that, praise be to God. He'll know. I don't know anything about it. For some of you, it's time to start the long, challenging, and exciting process of re-architecting your life around trust in God and not in wealth and moving progressively to a life of generosity and giving. For some of you, 
You're going to continue to walk in faithfulness and you're going to come alongside someone else to encourage them and to support them because that's what family does. Some of you are crushing it. You are generous and you are feeling his pleasure. Now it's time for you to encourage and support someone else to do the same. I'm asking you and inviting you to a life of generosity, to trust God. This is his plan for your life. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word to us, for these challenging passages that get right up in our souls. But God, by your spirit, by your word, by your people, would you encourage us and remind us to remember, to think and feel rightly about you. Would you encourage us, Father, not to try to hit some financial target, but to ever increasingly be transformed into the likeness of your son, Jesus, that your plans would be accomplished. God, we know that you are more than able and willing to do exceedingly abundant beyond we can ask or imagine. So would you do precisely that? And would you start with each individual soul? And Father, if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you, that is still trying to define their life by the abundance of their wealth and possessions, would you, by your spirit, use your word to reveal truth and illumine life? Would you give them the grace of belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that he resets the scoreboard by giving us infinite riches by your grace already. You remove all of our sin, all of our trespass, all of our iniquity, and it is banished as far as the east is from the west. Would you lead that person to life? And would you give them courage to talk about it with someone they know and love and trust? For the rest of us, Father, it's the middle of August. What will you do? What will you do with this? Would you give us humility and openness and transparency to respond to your lead, not the words of some preacher or some booklet, but would you, by your spirit, Lord, love us and lead us? We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.